I want to go ahead and kick things over to Mike. Good evening, everybody. I'm glad everybody's here. Good to see these faces. Even hi, mom. Hi, everybody else. To get started, I wanted to really take this as a halftime report because when you're talking about when you're talking about the halftime report, like I'm a big sports fan. I love the adjustments that championship teams make at halftime. And I kind of chided people, you know, earlier when I was talking about this, like the first half of this year in the markets was rough for a lot of people. For me, I've been having a blast, but it really doesn't matter if you're having a blast or, you know, you're you're up or you're way down. The most important thing about championship teams and sports that I found is that those teams that know how to make the adjustments at halftime, and this is exactly where we are in the markets, have an uncanny record of actually being the ones to win it all. And I thought it was just conjecture or anecdote, but when I really started looking into it, being the data hog that I am, I found two teams, love them or hate them. I love both of them, actually, but one slightly more than the other. The New England Patriots and the Golden State Warriors, as I went back and looked at their history, just in the last eight years, Golden State's won four of the last eight championships, so that's half of them. But if you look at their scoring in the second half of the game, you'll find that they're ranked way high. On average, they're six out of 30 teams, but for a consecutive period of four years, they were ranked either one or two. And on the flip side in football, the Patriots were almost exactly the same for a longer period of time since 2003 to about 2019. This ended up with 212 wins more than any other team in the NFL and six Super Bowls, far more than any other team in the era. I say all this to say this one thing. Smart investors have to look at the markets just like these teams. We like to say, oh, it's because of uh, Steph Curry or oh it's because oh it's because of Tom Brady it's really the combination of a lot of factors that makes for a championship team that can do it consistently the same thing goes for our portfolios and that's why I brought us here and I'm glad that Van wanted to host and I'm elated that Nelson basically came was was ready and able to do this because he and I have conversations to game plan quarter after quarter, just like we did back when we were at SC Capital together, talking about how to make adjustments. And we want to share that with everybody so that no matter where you were in the markets, we're here to make the adjustments. Appreciate that analogy, Mike. Now, gentlemen, there are a lot of people that are scared right now about what's going on in the markets and the current situation. A lot of people don't know what's going on or what's going to happen in the future. And to on top of that, there's an entire generation that's never experienced this before. So I really want to start off talking about what does it mean to be in a recession? And Mike, I want to start off with you. What exactly does that mean? Well, to keep it really simple, the textbook definition of a recession is anytime the economy has two consecutive quarters, so 90-day periods. You got two of them together where the economy is not expanding, but is contracting. That's pretty much it. Now, if you ask me what that means to me, it's kind of a whatever, because my take on it, especially being 
black in America is that it a recession, whether you're talking about textbook or what is, black people are always in a recession in a sense. So I gave you the textbook, but in a sense, it doesn't really mean much to me. Steve, I want to kick it over to you. Same question. What exactly does that mean to be in a recession? <clears throat> yeah, well, my kid it on the head, it's uh, morally when you have two negative consecutive quarters of GDP growth. And what that means for me is it's like when I think of GDP, it's just like your gross domestic product, how much your country is producing. And that is like your your what I call it, your data point that people use to determine the economic health of your country. So if you're expanding, it's positive, And if you're contracting, it's negative. And so people are basically saying if you own the company. Right. And you produce let's say 10 widgets a month. And then you go to from 10 widgets to now nine widgets next month and then eight widgets the next month, you're actually worsening and you're producing less. It means people are buying less. It means you're, uh, you have less income. So basically it's essentially saying people are going to be not producing as much, which means there's less money in circulation, which caused that to be a recession. And there comes a lot of things with the recession because, Hey, if a company's producing less, it means they're, less top line, which is your revenue line. Well, if they're producing less, that means when the expenses can't stay the same or else then we don't make any income. And so uh, then those that's what it comes to uh, cutting jobs or cutting production or cutting travel and, ex- travel and expenditure and cutting all different pieces of the company that you may have been able to spend on while the, while the money's flowing. And you just kind of have, that's why you see a lot of cuts everywhere during recessions. Now, taking it one step further, and Mike, I want to give it back to you on this. What exactly does being in a recession mean for Black people? Another day in the office? Again, I I stand on that because even in times as we've seen in the last economic expansion, if you take it back from the Great Recession 2008, but I could even go back further and further. During these periods of time, you saw the Black community as recently getting into investing, that sort of thing. But at the top line numbers of jobs and employment, uh, earnings, you know, there was a lot of information floating around about the average net worth of the black family versus white family, other, other, uh, other people. You ended up seeing that black families consistently, no matter whether the economy is expanding or contracting, uh, that we were much further behind, like a tenth of the net worth of white America, mainstream America. So another anecdote really from like my hometown and, you know, other small places, it was business as usual, even though for me, you know, uh, stock owners, people and, you know, with nice paying jobs, they were panicking back home. It was just kind of another day. And that tells you a lot about at least anecdotally what I think a recession really means. And so Again, I think we have a lot of ground to recover, no matter if it's a recession or if it's a pandemic or the economy is wide open because the effects are we still very underrepresented when it comes to one thing, which is ownership. Right, right. That makes a lot of sense. Nelson, I, I would love to go back to you on this one. Now, what would you say is the most important factor when it comes to successfully managing a portfolio through a downturn? Yeah, that's that's a tough, tough question, because every downturn isn't the same. Uh, so like you, you, for example, you had a pandemic, right? Whenever you just the reason that was a downturn is because you really couldn't go outside. However, because of that, you had so many of those 
companies or services that were built for indoor activity, they did well. However, whenever that those are pretty happen every hundred years, right? The uh, the the medical the, the pandemic outbreaks. I think the last one was the Spanish flu in 1911, and then you have structural recessions, which were in 2008, which those break everything. It doesn't matter who you are; you're probably going to get affected. If you're wealthy, you're probably going to get affected by the people the, of the middle class or the lower the the lower class, and that's because a lot of it's like the domino effect. You know, whatever that's a structural system break. It's like a crack in a bridge; it will break everything. It's the foundation. However, this one's more unique because this is a consumer what they're calling a consumer recession, and that's a little different from a structural recession or a pandemic uh, induced recession. And so from the performance standpoint, let me take another step back. Actually, it's not only consumer. There's like the most inputs I think I've ever seen. You have a war, you have inflation, you have high unemployment, you have COVID still lingering, you have student loan payments on pause. You have so many things going on <laughs> like that we don't even know what to call this one a recession. It's kind of like people are labeled like consumer recession. So as far as a portfolio, it is tough. I know some people, they look at it like, okay, I'm going to lose money regardless. There, there's really nowhere to make money. If anything, a lot of people are hoping to break even, right? On, on you, A lot of people view if you break even this year, you're good. If you made no money, that's you're just flat. And I think a lot of investors are starting to view it like that because it's almost impossible somewhat to make a real return anywhere. If you think, Mike, you can speak to this. Most people said, if I just hold cash, that's my safest investment. But if inflation's at whatever the number is, that kind of is combated now. Uh, I think right. Sam Taleb spoke this morning. He was he was tweeting all about all the different asset classes. And they said this was a hedge for inflation. Commodity was a hedge for inflation. Gold right. was a hedge for inflation. Stocks were a hedge for inflation. And if you've seen commodities this week, they're, they're cratering. And so it's tough. I, I'm answering that question. It's very, very tough. But the good thing about it is having like duration on your side. And when you have duration on your side, you should know, like, you know, most downturns only last. I think, Mike, what's the number? Like, I think six to 12 months. It's, it's a, yeah, six to it's a short yes. period of time for downturns versus bull markets usually last. If you just took average of the past five bull markets, it's like seven years. So right. if you have duration on your side without me getting too in depth, that, that kind of is helpful for an investor. It sounds like there's a lot of moving parts and a lot of data points to consider, basically, to sum up your points there. Well, with that, I actually want to transition into the second portion of our discussion here and start talking about inflation. Now, with the recession, essentially money has become more expensive. Nelson, I want to stick with you for a moment. Could you tell us what inflation really is? I and mean, I think I could speak for maybe some of us, if not most here. We know the textbook definition, but what does that really mean in your words? Yeah, Inflation, CPI, consumer price index, it's essentially the basket of goods and how expensive it's getting, what your dollar can get for it. And so essentially, when the whenever you see the number of inflation, most professional investors take what you call an inflation-adjusted return. So what it means by that, if you had 2% inflation, you had a dollar, right? They're basically saying... In 50 years, that dollar will be worthless because every year the, the, the basket of goods that I just spoke of is getting more expensive by that percentage. So essentially, if you just had a dollar, all right, 2% rip it off, 2% rip it off. If you, if you never deployed the dollar, that's why inflation gets so important is like when things are getting more expensive, it's going to take more of the dollars 
to purchase X material, food, anything you need. And that's why inflation, when it gets to, you know, your eight and 10 for eight and 10 percent, inflation starts to starts to outpace normal things that a human needs. You know, water, water bottles, food, groceries, gas, uh, housing, rent. And when it inflations outpaces uh, basic needs, your country's in a bad place because it could it could get really tough for the consumers, i.e. that's why we're seeing things like uh, the government intervention. We're seeing silly things or th- I don't want to call them silly. I don't want to get in trouble. But uh, California was mentioning inflation checks. So putting more money into into the circulation, but it's tough for everybody, right? And so infl- inflation is a real cost of living. I see inflation. I live in New York. I literally can see the inflation. What I mean by that is I'll go to a restaurant. I'll go back a month later and I can see the pricing is 20% higher and nothing has changed except the cost of chicken has went up that much. <laughs> you know, I don't know if you have gone to a steakhouse recently, the cost of steak is that much more expensive. That's inflation. However, if inflation's eight to 10 and your salary's five to four, like you technically are losing against inflation and then you're gonna, your pockets are going to be hurting because your dollar's weakening and you're not keeping up with that. So while your expenses and things are getting more expensive, if you're not making more, you're in the negative. And that's, that's a scary place to be. Taking it back over to Mike, how exactly did we get here, Mike? I mean, you can talk about government spending. You could even go as far back to COVID. But how exactly did we get to this situation, this moment in time? Well, one thing I have to remind is that, and this is kind of a sort of a coined phrase, that inflation itself is the byproduct of economic production. So there is always some level of inflation. I mean, there's a couple of schools of thought on this, but the late great, but also kind of mediocre Milton Friedman always said that, you know, inflation, as we saw it, was when the pace of money, you know, outstripped the pace of production. But again, we got a chart somewhere around here that shows 40, uh, looking at the last 40 years, and it's showing that we're coming back up in terms of the rate of inflation, but it's always been here. And you can look back to just the last 20 years or so that honestly, we can only see one year, 2001, where government spending was in surplus. Since 2001, since 2001, government spending has been at a deficit. And in lock and step with that, you have corporations that have benefited from that. You have consumers that have spent. So the economy, as we expand, Inflation is a part of that. It's one of the things that I tell my clients, tell Black students all the time. It's something that has always been. So when you say, like, well, how did we get here? It wasn't just, like Nelson said, it wasn't just the pandemic. We were looking for signs of the system to crack in 2018. I was really nervous October of 2018 because the market, uh, we were seeing problems with the repo market, is which, which is where you can say the big banks do all their lending and things of that nature. Yeah, that, there's our in, inflation spending uh, chart. If you bring it up or go up to view. But yeah, if you if you look at this chart, this is the uh, government spending. And in this chart, you can see that we have highlights from some uh, recessions. You can just see that really short, like the ones that we're expected to be in right now. The Great Recession, you know, 2008, 2009, you can see that government spending there was even higher and that came about with the first of the quantitative easing and the first stimulus, that sort of thing. When COVID came along, 
We took that same notion and did it to a higher degree, but that's really just human nature. That's not just the American government. If you look across the world, the same thing happens over and over again. It's human nature. So I uh, hope that answers your question, Van. But yeah, it's how we got here is how we are. We've always been that way about inflation. It's just when the rate gets higher, it's like going down the street. If you're driving in a car, for example, you're at 35 miles per hour, everybody's comfortable. You're still moving. But if you move up to 50, 50 moves up to 100, it starts to get nervous. You know, the, the chance of accidents is higher. So inflation and that that stretch that we've seen in this last bit is what me, what like Nelson says, when you get to a certain level, like eight, nine, 10 percent here in other countries is much higher. But also how quickly you get there. You know, yeah. Thanks for that, Mike. I actually want to go back over to Steve on this next question here. What does everyday life look like from here and coming out of this environment that we're in, Steve? What does everyday look like? <laughs> it's going to look different every day. You know, I mean, when you really think about it, we have never I don't I I can yet find a time being only 31, but I can really not find a time where we've had this many inputs uh, affecting the market, you know, like like I listed earlier before, you literally had Ukraine, COVID, inflation, unemployment, new elections. Uh, what else am I missing? Chain. Supply chain because of COVID, backing up excess demand, stimulus packages creating excess demand. It's just like there's. I just listed eight off the top of my head of inputs that are happening all at once that are all moving the economy at you know at different points in time, and so. When you're looking like from here, I, I would assume that hopefully, you know, I don't know I want to say this in a proper way. If you're looking at everyday life, I think inflation, there's two people, there's two trains of thoughts. Inflation is, has peaked. Some people believe that. And then there's some people believe that inflation is not reported accurately anyway. And it's actually higher than it is. But we all we have been seeing the Fed, the Federal Reserve has been raising interest rates, and that's one of their measures that they use to combat inflation. And they've been raising rates, but I don't know people. There's another trend of thought of how how effective has that been? Are they too late? How long will it take to actually get back to two percent? Is it going to be till 2026? So, and then people also realize like it's not deflation when the rate drops. It's right. just that's how much it's still inflating. You know, so if it's like inflation's eight percent in May, but then at seven percent, it it didn't, it's still seven percent inflated. You know, right, right. And so, well, well, Steve, I we actually have a question here in the chat, a question from John, and he's asking. So, two thousand and eight was about twelve trillion dollars in spend, and twenty twenty was about twenty trillion. Doesn't that mean we'll need an effective Fed funds rate of five to six percent to normalize? And Mike, I want to give you the chance to answer this. You know, I've, I've seen those numbers thrown around, you know, five, six percent where I really see the Fed right now. And I know, Nelson, you can't you can't tread here. But uh, where I really see the the Fed really going right now. I don't know if five, five, six is it, but I do know about three and a half, three point seven five as a base interest rate as a floor. That's really where I think they would head. And in, in, in that, that's just looking at historical numbers. That's looking at where the U.S. economy typically is and just adding a, maybe a little bit of buffer in there. I mean, you don't have to go back to the, you know, the, the trillion spend in 2008 and 20 here. I mean, if you really want to look at the velocity of money, just look at, you know, 2020 and 2021. If you look at all the dollars in circulation that have ever been, almost 40 percent of all the dollars were 
quote unquote, created in those two years. So that was actually after the Fed has started tapering off, has started basically shrinking the money supply, how much money was in circulation and look at it as M2 money. They started shrinking that then COVID hit and it was just an excuse to keep doing what we're doing. I don't know, honestly, John, if that five or six, but I do feel pretty confident that the Fed is going to try to track to three and a half, three, three point seven five. Appreciate that answer, Mike. Now I want to take the opportunity to transition into the second portion of our discussion today. And this is going to be a lot more focused on the tactical aspect of the current environment. And our first topic is actually going to be on trading. Now, Mike, I want to stick with you on this. Could you tell us a little bit more about why trading is more important now than ever? Well, for one, if you look at the last run, the run secular bull market that we've had that really comes off the lows of 2009 and the Great Recession up to you know the highs of you know, 2020, 2021, that capsulizes a really passive to me market. And what I mean by passive, a lot of the wealth that was created during that period of time, again, more wealth in, in history, was created from assets rising. Some of it you can call it artificial or whatever, you know, is Fed stimulus, central bank stimulus, what have you. You had the equity markets inflate and people who had assets, people who had ownership, also landlords. Like if you look at where a lot of the consumer money went, it was like uh, landlord and rent and, you know, mortgages, that's where a lot of their money went. If you owned in the last few years, you saw your wealth balloon. I mean, you saw even the billionaires add zeros to their already billionaire wealth, which was, I, I, I knew we were in a different space. Right now, as it's always, all of this stuff is very cyclical. That means it goes back and forth. And this is why I tell people, don't worry, be mindful about what you're doing, but it's not a time of panic. It's not a time of, oh, woe is me. It's a time to get your game on. It's a time to make adjustments and I don't know any better adjustment. And this is from a bias of a, a person that's been trading since 2005. Trading itself, when you're really doing it, not what people have been faking about for the last two years, because the same people that have been faking are the same ones crying about it now. But if you really know how to navigate the markets at some level, not day trading, not guessing, not speculating, but actually having an actionable plan, you can find opportunities in Lots of different markets, not just equities, not just hoping and praying that some stock that you heard about is going to go up. Trading is really, as we're talking about, is the ability to take an idea, take it through a hypothesis, big word, but basically see if you're going to be right or wrong. Calculate how to take risk in the market, not taking it to the casino and going all in and really coming out with a risk to reward, which basically says that if I'm going to risk this much money, I think in the future I can get this in return. If you can do that process repeatedly, consistently, it will not always be constant, but that is a skill set to generate income in just about any market, except for one that goes sideways or doesn't have any volatility. But from all the conditions that Nelson was talking about, about all the inputs and what he means by inputs is all the different factors that can affect the economy that's going on. Like you said, from the biological, like the pandemics or climate or geopolitical or wars, 
inflation, uncertainty. There's going to be a lot of volatility. Trading loves volatility. Investing, not so much. It, it makes your stomach kind of you know, roll. But trading is made for this type of environment. The problem with trading is you're not learning it well. And that's why Blacks Academy is here, because we teach it how it should be taught. Appreciate that. Going back over to Steve. Steve, there's a lot of hype quite frankly, around markets and what you're able to do. But which is more important? Is it the skills of understanding how to do the things you want in the markets? Or is it understanding the hype around which markets to be a part of? Well, I think the skills will determine what, when, when it's right and when it's wrong to dive into the hype. What I mean by that is like, if you have an investing construct, a trading construct, you know an environment fits for you. And the hype is only going to be gasoline or not, you know, to whatever direction you're on. So for example, if you were already, uh, let's say, what's a good example? So let's say the, the GameStop hype. Say if you literally were thinking like, hey, or AMC is easy one. Hey, when the movie, when COVID's over, these people are going to come back, come back to life. Movie theaters will open back up. There's going to be new showings. I'm going to put a lot of money. I think this is a recovery stock, uh, open up back stock play. And that was your thesis. And then you looked at the markets, you see what price you want to buy it at. You see you had your target price and then euphoria of that happened through Reddit. That for you, that has nothing to do with the, the market euphoria that just helped you, your position. Right. And that happens a lot. And most people I know that what you're talking about, they it's like called momentum plays, momentum swings. And they're like, they're literally trading on momentum or investing on momentum that usually ties into the hype. But again, like, goes back to what I just said. That's a skill to learn how to trade momentum. It's not easy as you think because you're actually reading different data sources than just charts. You're actually looking at inflows, not flows of orders uh, and, and deep data to know like, oh man, this many orders are come. And then you're fighting algos because they get the data faster than you. And so again, this I'm always big on the skill part because these markets are going to get destructed. Like it's like there, there are literal computers and humans who spend their entire weeks and hours in the day focusing on this. And if you literally are only, you know, doing this at your lunch break, it's going to be hard for you to consistently win. I've seen tons of people who made guest trades and made money. That's perfectly fine. That's going to happen. It's a market. It's just like you get hit in Vegas. But the skill set, if you want long-term success, it has to, it has to come from a skill and learning the process, not only with trading and investing. It sounds like a lot of people mistake uh, skill for luck there, Steve, right? <laughs> yeah. And time will always tell, though. You know, it's like you, you can, you, you, especially in this market, like if you hit once or twice, yes, it's true. One big winner will wash away all the losses. But that only, <laughs> but that phrase is only for people who have the liquidity to make the big win. If you lose yes. 10 times straight and then you're, you're out of money, <laughs> like, right. you know, did you, you, you may not even have a, big enough position to wipe the losses away. So Right. Definitely. Well, kicking it back over to Mike. Mike, could you briefly tell us, in your opinion, which market is the most important to trade and why? <laughs> there is none that is more important to trade than the other, from my point of view, because I trade just about anything that one makes sense and I can make sense of it and anything that moves. And what I mean by moves is that it's that volatility thing. One of the mistakes, and I made this mistake myself as a young professional, 
you know, transitioning into trading, not just for myself, but for clients was to fixate on one thing and not just a personal mistake, but it was almost a fatal mistake for myself and my business was the fact that I was fixated on one market. And I saw this, I see this with stock guys, I see this with Forex guys, and my goodness, I see it with crypto. Like the crypto mania, and I, I've been waiting for it to talk a little bit about crypto. I'm, I'm going to stand up on it because I know this is something that everybody's really excited about. And I'm not saying that it's wrong, but to be so myopic, to be so blind, to think that the one thing is going to be the thing that does it for you is to take the wrong mindset into not just trading, but investing. Like you have no chance at trading if you have that one thing mindset, because when you learn how to trade, you're really learning how to make good decisions. If you can make a good decision in one aspect of the life, chances are you can repeat that because you understand it at a very high level and you can kind of transmute that to another area of life. Now, granted, we do get you know that mixed up where we go from one domain thinking we're good there and we go to another one and we're not. I mean, you'll see a lot of politicians, a lot of celebrities kind of do that. We do that in our daily daily lives, thinking you know that sort of thing. But when you really learn foundationally, like Nelson was saying, how to look at different inputs, how to make decisions based on those, and how to consistently do that, these are the things that we talk about in Blacks Academy at length. Is that you have different markets, but the same problem, and that same problem is that hit a lot of people. All the markets went up. And then all the markets came down, but nobody thought, hmm, well, I'm trading in crypto and stocks, but I think that both of these two things are different things, but not seeing that they're what we call risk assets, which is real. That's just a way of saying that when investors think that the market is going to go up, risk assets are those things that will go up. Now, granted, crypto being more volatile than most stocks will go up more than most stocks. But when they come down, they're going to come down worse than most stocks. But the thing is, you're going to see, as you can see from the chart here, they're not exact, but they're kind of lock and step. When one leaves, the other one follows. If you're a trader, or you're in the mindset of somebody that says, hey, there's got to be another way. You could add another asset that other people were really uh, excited about, which is options. Options are a derivative. Most people missed out on the fact that options were initially designed to hedge or protect positions and basically help investors transfer risk of their markets going down. But people were trying to, you know, again, getting rich, fast money. It was working for a while, but they could have used what they knew to say, hey, I've got these positions that I can actually protect. We have an options course coming up in just next week. Well, we'll just talk about the basics of how just a small outlay just a small outlay, a few pennies on every dollar could have saved your positions in Netflix, could have saved your positions in all your tech stocks, could have saved your positions in everywhere instead of, you know, you're down 50, 60, 70 percent on your portfolio. A right timed or right thought, carefully thought out options play could have nullified a lot of that or at least softened the blow. But we're not talking about that. We are Blacks, but not so much as I've been seeing elsewhere. 
great points made there, Mike, and I appreciate the kind of deep dive as far as some of the particulars. Now, I actually want to transition into the last portion of our discussion and talk about the investing side of things. We've spoken about trading. Now let's talk about the investors. So I want to kick things off back with you, Steve, and hear about, you know, what does diversification look like for the modern investor? Yeah, that's an interesting question because like I was always, you know, a big fan of like how to look at not not putting all your eggs in one basket. And like historically, what I've always done in my portfolios, I tried to touch different asset classes just to give myself some exposure. However, there is something to be said that, you know, uh, having multiple asset classes and having diversity in your portfolio can limit upside, which is definitely true. That's just how math works. However, it does limit your downside. And so there's two trains of thoughts for that. And the reason I think uh, diversification is important, though, is that most people, (laughs) it's going to sound crazy, most people aren't skilled enough in one asset to manage within that. For example, you know, if you if you listen to K, uh, Henry Kravitz, who owns KKR, which is one of the biggest private equity firms in the United States, he did a talk at my school, and I think it's recorded. He said that he's never bought, he's never really owned a stock. Wow. I don't own stocks. He's like, we were like, well, you're worth a few billion. What do you mean? Like, we don't stock. He's like, I've never owned stocks. He was like, because I was so crafty and. And so uh, well-versed in private equity, I didn't want to deploy my wealth anywhere else. This is what I do. I deploy it in, in this. If you look at uh, Grant Cardone, he deploys all his money in real estate. But then you, the two people I just mentioned, that's their profession. That's their livelihood. That's their skill set. And so that it, that's how I kind of compare things where it's like most people aren't deploying their entire life to one asset class because that takes extreme, extreme skill. And that's why diversification helps more of the average investors because you can basically, you know, protect yourself from these certain down or upswings, downswings and whatnot. And and whenever that happens and which will inevitably always happen. So for me, I think it's very important because, A, like I said, it's kind of hard to be skilled in one asset alone and know how to maneuver within that asset like that. And two, it does help everyone with, managing the ebbs and flows because if we just exclude this current economic condition we're in right now if you were like say like mike said if you were currently in real estate with some stocks your real estate in the past year should have skyrocketed and your stocks may have you know haltered uh and if you were in real estate and you owned a lot of properties you're you're going to collect way more cash due to rent increases because supply chain, but then your stock portfolio may be taking a hit, but it could be offset by the increase in cash flow you're getting from rent. Rent. So that's why there's that's a perfect situation to show why diversification can can help in times, but at the same time limit some of the upside because what if all the money you had in stocks you had four more houses, now you just got you know saying so it's it's the it's the battle of the two, but I, I I lean for most people to most people lean on the side of diversification. Couple of great points made there, Steve. Mike, I want to bring it back over to you and hear your take on what does you know what does that look like for the modern investor? It looks way different than what they've been told. I can't tell you how many clients. I can't tell you how many friends thought they were diversified. They thought they would argue me up and down like I haven't been doing this for almost two decades, that they were diversified because they owned Apple and they owned Tesla and they owned, you know, pick another something in some out of some sector. And I'm like, these are all equities. 
And what we have on the screen here just shows you, like, if we went back 20 years, half of the stuff that you see here would not be available to any investor, except for like your institutions or your private capital type things, your private equity groups, your, your hedge funds. But now, due to technology, which I don't want to segue too much, but technology itself is one of the ways I think we will walk out of this, you know, oncoming recession if it does actually come and we will definitely be the path one the path forward. But technology has enabled everyday investors, just like you getting on your Robin Hood and buying garbage, you could also buy a lot of get exposure to a lot of other asset classes. And, you know, kind of I love the contrast you brought, you know, where you're talking about Henry Kravitz of KKR or Grant Cardone. I'll take it another stretch and go the opposite direction and say, if you want to look at big institutions, uh, pension funds, which manage big tens and not hundreds of billions of dollars, one of my favorite uh, things to look at right now, which is college endowments. I actually talked to a lot of college endowments as well. And I've done a lot of research over the last three years on them. If you look at the top college endowments, they are the epitome of a diversified investor. And the reason is simple because the college themselves says, hey, we want to survive into perpetuity, which means forever. We see our investment time frame is infinite. So what they do is they invest their money in surprising ways. Like if you looked at every dollar that Harvard, now probably close to 60 billion in assets under management for that school. And that's what that money is really used for. It funds the school, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, they have sizable amounts of their endowment, which pays for the operation of their school. Same thing you want to do for your investment portfolio. Most of y'all sitting on here that are investors, you want your investment portfolio to pay for your lifestyle, right? So though, well, how do they do it? They're not so much worried about getting the big gains. They want consistency in uncertain times. And how do they do that? They invest some in stocks, just a little. They invest some in bonds, just a little, some in natural resources, hedge funds, real estate, all of these things. So that's the way that we should be looking at it. Your job for your investments is to work for you, and they're not all supposed to be doing the same thing. So, Mike, I, I want to dig into that a little bit. And, and Steve, I want to get your take on this, too. Let's talk about crypto and real estate. So, Mike, would you invest in crypto or would you not invest in crypto? Absolutely. You know, to, this, it's a no brainer. But my, I will say that my reasons for investing in crypto is not because I think it's going to be a world changer, at least not cryptocurrency. I have very staunch views on, you know, the valuelessness of cryptocurrencies and argue with the moms and your cousins and everybody else on that. But I invest in crypto and will continue to do so. The thing is different about it is, I only invest a small portion. I'm not looking to get rich from it. I'm looking to almost be wrong. And if the upside is there, I capture some of it and we keep going. It's a diversify. I don't know the future. I don't care either. Steve, going over to you, crypto, investing or not investing? I'll answer that question in a simple way because I can't, you know, I want to be safe on the direct advice. Easiest way is this. Mike, what type of capital should every investor invest? It's it's your risk capital. It's the risk capital that right. you're 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 willing to invest. You're right. not investing your future rent. You're not investing your mortgage. You're not investing your kids' tuition account. 
You're investing money that you are comfortably investing in. The number one rule of investing is you can never guarantee a return. And so whenever people ask, like, should you invest in this and whatnot? Yes, you're investing and you hope you don't lose that money. But if you invest it and you lose the money and then you have a complete life breakdown, you probably invested the wrong capital. And it's simple as that. And I think the real question, the real answer to your question of should you invest in crypto is, do you have the psychological uh, foundation to invest in an asset class like that? That's really what it comes down to. If you're willing, if you can handle that volatility, if you can handle that that potential of losing everything, it's the same as can you handle options? Can you go naked puts? Are you you ready to handle the psychological inputs that are going to come with investing? And if not, you probably shouldn't invest that certain amount of cap. I mean, I think most people don't think of investing like that. They say, hey, man, I'm, you know, I'm going to, uh, you know, get this $500 and put it there and then they lose it and they're, they're, they're shook about it. It's because they re- that really wasn't risk capital. That, that, that They may have needed that more than they wanted it. And uh, so they label crypto a risky asset, but investing in real estate is a risk. There's a risk with every investment that you could lose yes. a lot. And so uh, you just need to ask yourself, are you willing to are you willing to deploy this capital with the potential of losing it? And if you do lose it, is it going to affect your personal life in a way that uh, it's going to cause serious harm to your, 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 your cost of your life, your lifestyle? I mean, if the question's yes, it will, you probably should invest it. <laughs> you, you bring up an interesting point there, Steve, about the, the mindset for the asset class. And I actually want to take it back over to Mike and hear about what sort of mindset should people be in to invest and really understand what it means to invest in real estate, Mike? You know, it, whether we're talking, we, and we can say real estate, but we really can talk about a lot of different things. But to me, I think quality is the thing that people should be focused on, especially where we are now at halftime. You know, no matter what happened to you, whether you're killing it or you're being killed in the markets right now, I think the focus on quality and really slowing down to learn. One of the things that we miss out is that, and this is one we harp on, is that you have opportunities and you also have the lessons that you learn from your mistakes. A lot of people like to not focus on the mistakes, but in trading and especially even investing, if you just retrace your steps and understand where you are or what's happened, a lot of times you can find so many different opportunities in so many different markets uh, that you really weren't even thinking about. For example, like you were talking about, like for real estate, during this last period, you kind of had you know, the ideal for even uh, single family homes and people that invest in those, like some people were flipping, but you could actually rent out a single family home, get the asset appreciation, right? Well, you, you get it in the right neighborhood, the value of the uh, house is going up but you're also renting it out. So you're getting the best of both worlds. Uh, The closest approximation in crypto would be like staking in in that regard. There's the same process of where you're getting some type of, you know, periodic yield based on, you know, you just having an asset. Even though those things don't work or haven't been working as well now, you can take what you've learned and say, hey, I can go to another market. For example, one of the old things that will probably be new is when I first got into currency trading, this is again, way back, you know, in 2005, 2006, a lot of the interest rates for a lot of the central banks 
were way higher than they were now. Like New Zealand was at 8%. United States, we were at 5, 5.5%, 5.75%. And then you have other regions of the world that would have lower interest rates. What you would do is you would try to buy the asset that had the higher interest rate, hope that it appreciates in price. And you would also make that interest rate differential because if you're holding an asset that's at a higher interest rate and one at a lower, you make the difference. So you're making that same type yield. Things like that may come back into play. But if you've never heard of this, you just don't you don't know. Great points made there, Mike. I want to thank you both. Now we're actually going to transition into our Q&A session. So for our audience, please feel free to drop any questions in the chat. And I just want to mention that you guys should probably stick around because right after our Q&A, we're going to give it back over to Mike to hear some of his final game plans and thoughts surrounding our discussion. So feel free to drop your questions in the chat. We've got about 15 minutes or so. Or feel free to turn your microphone on and ask Mike and Steve directly. Anybody brave enough? Yeah, don't be shy. Yeah, I mean, any, any question. Seriously. So I have a question. Nels, when you were giving your answer earlier about, you know, whether or not to invest in your risk tolerance and all that, how would you how would you answer that question again if you take into account the situation of most people where any amount of money makes them makes them nauseous because they don't have that that capital to necessarily say invest? How would you how would you answer that question then? If they don't have the money to invest yet? Well, I I, kinda, I think I know what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And honestly and truly, if they don't have the money to invest, how would you answer that question? Oh, that's good because that's, Mike said, that's a lot of our people, unfortunately. And so uh, it's tough because you're you're hearing so many courses. You see so many clips on Instagram about boss up, invest here. Now you can do the fractional account, X, Y, Z. And I think there comes a, there's, there's two pieces that comes to that. One, I'm a big proponent of like, the psychology of investing needs to be, you know, understood and met first. So what I mean by that, your 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 fundamental needs of capital need to be met before you're investing. So like, if you don't have like three months of savings and your, you know, high interest debt paid off, that I think that should be the first plan of attack, right? Because I think I've I've noticed the difference even with myself when I've had a solid personal finance foundation set. Investing felt way easier. I know if I lost the, you know, the 20K on a stock account, I'm not like hurting in the back end, knowing like if something happened, I can't pay for it. You know, if a medical emergency happened, I'm worrying about the stock depreciation, right? And a lot of people though, they just look, they skip past that stage. And there you can ask any personal finance advisor, the David Ramseys, you guys, all of them, and they could, they're probably on the same note of like, you know, you should probably have some of your needs met financially before you're going out there to deploy risk capital that you really don't have. Two, I was talking to Mike about this earlier. If you don't really have enough money to even get real returns, you should always self-invest. You should just be self-investing. What I mean by that is like buying a Blacks Academy curriculum, like buying books hey. to understand the knowledge like because that's that will give you way better of a return than buying one share of apple and it goes up 12%. Oh, I got 12% return and you made 12 bucks. And again, psychologically it makes you feel good making a dollar that same process is the same with $100 versus $100 million. I get that. But I personally think there's an intangible return 
uh, on investments you get when you invest in yourself, when you don't really have that much money to invest. I mean, with $100, you could buy a share of Apple. That's true. That's perfectly fine when it, say, when it was $100 last year. Or you could buy 10 investing books like <laughs> from, uh, from, from a library or a used bookstore. And that, I would think, would potentially give you better return on your time and the money long term versus like just buying that one share, you know, or the people who, you know, they'll buy like there. I see these, these random clips that are like, oh, you know, 10 stocks under 50 bucks you could buy right now. Right. And I'm like, you know, some of those stocks are 50 bucks and they've stayed in the 50 bucks range for 10 years. So like the person you're just telling <laughs> that, you know, it's always like if they're 50 bucks for a reason. And so I'm a big, big proponent is if you don't have the money to invest yet and every dollar feels like risk capital, like to the point where any dollar loss, you're going to be in a mental whirlwind. You should probably a start saving to get that like that your fundamental uh, personal finance base up. So then psychologically, every dollar isn't affecting you or two, just self-invest, you know, saying buy a class, buy those books, get the online course, you know, learn about the market. So whenever it is time to, to deploy the capital, you feel way more comfortable than just freelancing. He, he said, focus on yourself, King. Great question. Mike, did you want to chime in on that? Yeah, I mean, honestly, the, the first point I came to is like, if you're black in America, it's always a recession. And that's not just, you know, everybody, but it, I will take it back really to this point. And Nelson, you hit that beautifully. You really do need to focus on yourself. A few things to me kind of stick like really, really, really stick out there. And getting appreciable skill in a time of uncertainty is primo. Because if we look at the economy, all we've been saying is that we've never seen anything like this. Well, get prepared to answer some of the problems that the world is facing today. And you say, well, I'm not looking to change the world. You don't necessarily have to do that sort of thing at a large level, like a superhero or a multi-billionaire. But think about just the pandemic. The pandemic has shifted work from home. It has shifted how we think about our health. So careers in healthcare, careers in information technology, cybersecurity. These are going to be the things that are going forward. And there's uh, some data on this. The BLS is looking at almost 12 billion new jobs are gonna be made in the next 10 years. Well, starting from 2020 to 2030. To get on that train, you're gonna have to be competitive because there's gonna be a lot of people because of these economic pressures wanting to get in those. So part of this, like we're talking, just like we were saying, trading is an asset. Trading is an asset you know, a skill set that is for a few people, you know, if you come see us, you will, you can be one of those, but for everybody else that's investing in stuff, invest in learning some type of skill set that can pay you and that is going to be in demand for the future. And there are so many new jobs. We had a list of those uh, that we can share that actually for the next, like I said, 10 years, there's going to be a lot of opportunity just in that. And Cash flow is king. So if you can up your cash flow by having an appreciable uh, new job or skill set, oh, there's our, there's our fastest growing fields here. Look at these a solar, uh, as I'm seeing, alternative energy, physical therapists, a lot of, and some of them are a little, some of them are a little morbid, like crematory operators and personal care workers. 
But these are the fields that are going to be in demand. And like inflation, it's going to be growing at a high rate. And as these jobs are coming into the hot, into the spotlight, you better believe that a lot of jobs are not. So that focus on yourself thing better include some higher education. And you can get that a number of different ways. But getting the skill sets that matter for the future. So, Mike, we've got some more questions coming in here. Latanja wants to know, as it pertains to real estate and rental properties, what would you say about assessing your risks with multiple properties and return on investment of those properties? Is there a risk benchmark to strive for when using these as an investment? Mike, we'll stick with you. Now, in terms of a real estate benchmark, Nelson, you may know more about that. But to me, if you're looking at your properties, like, almost like I treat almost all investments the same way. You look at the capital that you've allocated. You look at, you know, what that potential return on capital is and basically taking, there are a couple of equations that you can look at from that. Again, in terms of benchmark, not quite sure. Nelson, you you may know, but once I, I typically look at an asset as how much risk of my total, of my risk capital, am I allocating towards these things? Are they the same? Like you say, if you're having multiple properties, are you talking about a single family or are you talking about a piece of land? Are you talking about something that you can rent out? Or is it, again, a piece that's going to appreciate over time? You have to kind of characterize them and then you can assess the risk based on that. Uh, maybe some you can do some REIT benchmarks as well that may help, but uh, that's that's pretty much how I would look at it. Yeah, each, each benchmark is slightly different. Some there are some investors who just also compare real, their real estate investments to the S and P. Uh, like Mike said, some may compare it to REITs. Some may just comp it to uh, you know w- what their personal agenda is. Like there there is that too. You know, if you look at some of these wealth planners, they they'll have a, they'll have a client come in and they'll ask, okay, what's your agenda? And based on that answer, they'll have an income producing portfolio that it may not look at solely beating S and P, but just producing income. For the person, they might they might just buy bonds and dividend stocks because they're literally looking for income. It's income uh, as it's income portfolio. Then you have a growth portfolio. Then you can have a value portfolio. So benchmarking with real estate is kind of hard, and it's kind of dependent on each investor. But I know a lot of people. It's especially like general investors. They go, okay, I'm, they compare it to the S and P because that's as simple as taking your dollar, going on a broker pressing in or buying and having no fees versus like whenever you have a house or real estate, there comes different things with like, you know, the, the, the 20% or 10 to 20% down payment, then maybe the closing costs, then even then the fix up fees, then the lawyer fees, then holding it, maintenance, CapEx throughout the period of the whole, then you have the exit and the same price, the same costs come with that. So then you're going to really look on your cash on cash return. And if your cash on cash return with all that was only 10%, you know, annually, you may go like, man, I could have just like had none of that and just used the market. But then there are some investors who say like, no, my cash on cash return for my real estate was uh, 30% IRR. Like I'm good to go. Like I beat the market by, you know, and that has, that has happened recently with, you know, real estate appreciation. So that's, that's how some people look at the benchmarking. So I want to go back to Mike for this next question here. John is asking, is there still time to short bounces in equities or are we gearing up for some big upside surprises in earnings season? Mike. You know, it depends on if you're looking at the market of the broad sense, you know, not to prognosticate 
too much, but I, I will say, and you'll see in later when we actually roll out the charts for this, I think we're hitting the levels as possible. But what you're asking is, you know, what are we going to do in the future? It's always room for downside. I mean, if you piece out the market into different sectors, there are going to be some sectors that were strong recently. Like you look at like consumer staples and things of that nature that have been very strong. If we're starting to look more positive, there's your short opportunity, for example. But looking at the market as a whole, that's a little bit harder to answer. But you, I'd have to, again, this is where the skill part comes into. You have to start from an idea of saying, well, I want to short or I see some more downside in the market. How do I go about making sense of whether that's not? Then you piece, you take the market apart by pieces, say that, hey, and we're talking about the stock market here, but you could also take this to other parts of the market and you actually should. But take the market apart and then assess because I could give you a different answer depending on what you're doing. Dietrich is asking, what is your position on employer stock options or grants as a short or long-term investment strategy? Do you recommend holding these or offloading them as the shares vest? We'll stick with you, Mike. Oh, I mean, that's so again, as advisors, that's, that's, that really goes into personal like investment advice. You'd have to come see me at SC Capital to really get an answer to that. But the broad term stroke answer of that is it depends on what your overall financial picture is. One, you know, again, depending on the nature of the of the stock option, depending on if it has any restrictions or that sort of thing, you have to take all of those things into consideration, whether to answer that question at a broad term. And again, where's your financial situation? Because you may be able to do some where you where you exercise some early on, pay off some debt, like Nelson saying, because this is a good time to do so. And you don't necessarily lose much in the back end, but it depends very much. Uh, contact your, your company and have them really sit down and talk about what those options look like. What are your rights? Uh, what are your time frame for exercising and that sort of thing? But again, we'll take you at SC Capital. We can talk all day about that. It looks like Vaughn is asking us, multiple crypto funds have gone under and or suspended withdrawals. Mike, I know you mentioned people aren't talking about options to hedge against stocks. What can we learn about as we invest in ourselves to shore up our crypto positions? Mike, we'll start with you. It's really simple. Take risk into account first. I know that everybody comes to the market. I did too. You come to the market thinking about how much you can gain. But, you know, Buffett says rule number one is to not lose money. So your mindset, and this goes into this, this second half, as we go into the second half, it's not that you're not taking risks, but you need to know how to calculate. You need to know how to think about it differently. And just like we were talking about the options to hedge, there's a lot of other markets out there that you can start putting quality funds into that will hedge your position because they're simply different. This is, goes back into that diversification thing. If you start to understand the markets as a, a big framework of a lot more things out there, and you, just like you learned about crypto or just like you learned about options or Forex or whatever you learned about, you can learn about other aspects too and start putting resources, risk assets only, you know, risk, risk capital only towards those things. And I think that will hedge you out a lot better. It's not the time to go, you know, broad stroke, oh, I need to get out of this. But at the same time, I would tell people, don't sit there and add good money to bad positions either, just because you believe. Because 
time Nelson, like Nelson started telling you, you know, we t- your time horizon, your duration, as he was talking about, that period, we don't know. It could be one year as is average, or it could be something, it could be 20, 30 years. You don't have that long to wait. I don't care who you are. Steve, I want to go back over to you for this question as well. So the question was to shore up your position. I believe he's asking, what exactly can we learn about as we're investing in ourselves? Earlier, you mentioned the act of investing in ourselves instead of just jumping straight in. I believe he's asking, correct me if I'm wrong, Vaughn, what exactly could we learn about to prepare us for crypto? Yeah, so basically, is there an equivalent, as as Mike mentioned, no one's talking about using options to hedge against stock positions. So as we talked about using this season to invest in ourselves, is there equivalent for uh, for the crypto market that we can learn about to try to hedge positions? It may not exist. I don't know. That's why I'm asking uh, you fine gentlemen. I, don't, I haven't heard of any crypto options yet. Perpetuals. There was like... Uh, for, I don't know. I have really haven't seen any like hedging positions yet. Like I think maybe yeah. like if you what bought Coinbase, I don't know. It, I haven't. <laughs> it must be like not as readily available because I've honestly haven't heard anything for the hedging of a crypto position. Perpetuals maybe, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't recommend that. That's. I mean, it's hard enough trying to short or going against the trend in most crypto. So yeah, I think counterparty risks is one of the biggest things risking crypto right now. So, uh, well, not it, it always has existed, but yeah, I think counterparty oh, yeah. risk is, is- that John yeah. made a good point. If you're talking about counterparty risk versus yeah. like your 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 your, uh, your broker risk of their having solvency issues, he said you oh, could yes. just put it in cash or just get your nano wallet. So uh, right. that that's, that's true as well. If you're looking at like the broker risk. Great questions. Uh, we've probably got time for about one or two more if anybody has anything else to add. All right, so I got one. Long-time listener, first-time caller. Uh, good to see you, Mike. So when it comes to getting into, you know, diversifying your asset class, so how would you recommend getting into real estate? So I'm not trying to buy, you know, a single family. I would love to buy a building, but don't have the money for a building. So right. how do you recommend getting, or how can you go about getting into real estate? One of the, I think, easier ways is, I mentioned it before, real estate investment trust is, you know, it's a very stock or equity-like position where you can buy into real estate. You get exposure to real estate without having all the idiosyncrasies and things that go into real estate. And it gives you good exposure to that market. Uh, That's that's a layup to me. Uh, There are a few others, but right now, I think a REIT, as they would call them, would be an easy one because it still is going to give you that same financial market feel. You can still buy REITs, you know, through any of your brokerages and get exposure to real estate. Thank you. Great question, Kevin. And it looks like we've got the Blacks Academy asking us, is the war still a factor in the markets? Steve, I want to go over to you for this one first. From what I for what we've seen, I think initially it was just like oil. And they were saying like, you know, because oil, the Russian exports, I forgot how much percent of the world is oil or whatnot. But from this week, we've seen like oil drop below $100 a barrel. So I don't know if it's the biggest, you know, if there's going to be any more effects of the Ukraine and, and Russian crisis. But 
from the oil standpoint, we have seen oil start to uh, fall and break $100 again. So, but again, it's yet to be seen. We don't know yet. Michael. Oh, so to me, I think the war is going to be an issue in the markets, but not nearly what we see it to be. Because if you think about it like this, look at how long we were in Afghanistan and those sort of things, the markets boom. So markets, because they're related to our mindsets, tend to adjust. Now, if there is some big change, some fundamental change to uh, the Russo-Ukraine war, I think that may roar the markets. There's also in the commodity space, you know, there's oil that Nelson just talked about, but also the breadbasket of the world in Ukraine and Russia in terms of wheat and grains may in this in the fall season, as we, we get into the fall, we may start seeing some uh, perturbations in the market that way. But I think as long as the mindset of investors, and this is going to sound terrible, but as long as the mindset of investors kind of relaxes on it, it's like Nelson's saying, you're seeing oil prices going down. You won't see it at the pump yet. That's something else. But you'll start to see the markets kind of normalize and take the war as just something that is. And that's just human nature. So, yes, but probably not as much as we think unless we have something outlandish happen. Great questions from everybody. I think that's going to do it for our Q&A session here. I want to turn things back over to Mike for his final thoughts and his final game plan. All right, we're going to tee up this last slide whenever y'all are ready. So in closing, the real game plan, I hope y'all really weren't coming here to hear it say, oh, we're going to invest in Apple. No, we don't do that. We don't do that here. The whole idea is to change your mindset. It doesn't take much, but it is a mind shift that is the most important. From where I started in trading to where you know, I am a trader and investor, and asset manager, the main thing that you need to know for the second half, Q3, Q4, is simple. We say cash is king, but what we really mean is cash flow is king. Right now, if y'all are listening, control your cash flow. It's always important, but it's more important right now because money has just gotten more expensive. So you need to better manage how you use it. If you've got debts eating away, try to pay down the ones that are the most aggressive. One thing that you know we talk about, again, I love trading, but I'm good at trading. Not everybody's going to be good at trading unless they come to Blacks, but get a side hustle or get some sort of appreciable skills, buy courses. On the internet, There's internet has leveled the playing field. You can even pursue advanced education. I mean, I'm, everybody here talking is a product of advanced education. These things are going to be the things that I think will help set up not just Black America, but America as general in getting to the spot to where this too shall pass and it will, and we get back to the opportunistic, the, the, the better days ahead to where you'll have enough money, like Nelson says, to really make an impact when you're investing. You're not just making $10, $20, you're making $10, $20,000. You don't want to have that same $100 that you have today in five years, you're going to need, because of inflation and a lot of other things, you're going to need to have 10, 20, $100,000. Do the things that are necessary to make that possible. And that is the mindset that we're saying this second half game plan. On top of that, I do encourage you all strongly, come rock with us at Blacks Academy. 
learn about the other markets. There's so much outside of crypto, so much outside of stocks, so much outside of everything that you've heard. So we can put it, help you put it together and it will get your mindset in a different place. And in a few years, you yourself will be in a different place. That's the game plan. It's just a slight adjustment, but it's all up here. And that's all I got. Appreciate that, Mike. Well, I want to be the first to say thank you to everybody who was able to make it out tonight. Oh, and Mike, did you want to talk about the uh, fall boot camp as well? Well, two things. We have the fall boot camp, but just next week, we're going to have a live options course. I'm going to run people through the intro to options. We talked about options a little bit. People have loved options for two years, then they kick their butts and I see a lot of people running away. We're going to show you how to use fear and volatility, which is a change in the market, to your advantage. Protect yourself. Learn how to take this skill and apply it across your investments to make your life better. That's just next week. We're going to have two days. Try not to miss it. And there's two ways to get to it. And yes, options kicked everybody's butt because, again, it's much harder when you don't know what you're doing. And then after that, we're going to have in the fall, we're going to have another boot camp where we basically run you through the gamut of what it means to be a trader that is taking professional tools, a professional mindset and bringing it to your home. You don't want to miss it. Our first boot camp early this year was absolutely wonderful. Uh, we have traders making plays, making money and really, again, expanding their mindsets beyond what they thought. And they're actually feeding us as well. So we look forward to you joining that as well. So starts in September. It's included with the Blacks Academy Lifetime Membership. But hey, I wouldn't want to do it without you guys. So we'll be there. Hope you are too. All right. Well, I think that's going to do it for our discussion. I want to say thanks to Mike Sutler and thanks to Steve Nelson for joining us. This was great. I hope everybody was able to get something out of this. And I'm sure, as always, feel free to reach out to either myself, Mike, or Steve for anything else related to Blacks or SC. But in the meantime, I'm your host, Van, and we are signing off. I hope you all have a great evening. Thank you all. Thanks, everybody. Yes, thank you, gentlemen.